0: Hello and welcome to the I3 podcast. My name is Walter Klein and I'm the director of content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3 Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Michael Ritchie, who is Managing Director and Chief Data Scientist for Neuberger Berman. Michael,
1: welcome. Great to be here.
0: So I was talking to a friend of mine who is a data consultant, and he asked me, I look after data, I look at you know how to protect it, but I'm not a data scientist, and I have no idea what a data scientist is. So Michael, what is a data scientist?
1: Yeah, it's um, a data scientist is someone who can creatively find insight out of data and so uh data is uh, as uh andrew ing from stanford is the new oil and um i mean there's so much information and it's just a matter of actually thinking creatively about how to extract the information from data
0: so how did you get into this uh, field? Because I think you were an academic for many years before. Um, you've done degrees in other uh, disciplines as well. How did you come to data science?
1: Well, I- interestingly, well, actually, my, my first job was in data. So I um, did uh, undergraduate work in uh, math and physics. And um, in fact, as a summer uh, intern, I got a job at Intel and eventually went to work for Intel after doing some graduate work in physics. Um, and my job was actually analyzing data on uh, the production process for making microprocessors, uh, which characteristics of what the region of the production parameters were, things would work. Um, and so it was called a product engineer. And so I guess from the, my entire career, I've been analyzing data to, to try to, uh, to find um, how to make things work.
0: And I think you also uh, studied neuroscience. How mm. does that help you understand uh, artificial intelligence and that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, so what happened after a few years at Intel, um, so I came from a working class background and I wanted to prove I could earn a living. And I could certainly prove I could earn a living. They were paying me too much. Didn't want my boss's job. I wanted to work in artificial intelligence. I knew enough computer science and engineering, but I didn't know any biology. So I thought if I want to work on reverse engineering the brain, I should learn some biology. So I did a PhD in neuroscience.
0: And have you been able to reverse engineer the brain?
1: (laughs) Actually, yeah, it was was, uh, fantastic. In fact, um, I was very, very lucky because my advisor in neuroscience was a guy named John O'Keefe. And he had some phenomenal ideas about how the brain worked. And I worked with him on it, helped him build some engineering to answer the questions. And he won the uh, Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2014 projected my image on the wall in Stockholm, which is as close as I ever get.
0: (laughs) Fair (laughs) enough. It's further than I get. Um, So how did you then get involved into the investment field in the asset management industry?
1: Yeah, so um, uh, so I've been... The, what I liked about being an academic was the freedom to think about big open problems, but I missed the impact of um, uh, being an industry. At Intel, if you had a new idea, a million copies go, could go out of the factory the next month. So I helped my students start a couple of startup companies. Um, the first one was analyzing bank uh, data in order to find money laundering and white-collar crime. We had 18 of the top 25 banks when we sold that business to Walbur Pinkus in 2005. Um, then I helped another student start a business um, analyzing online activity to decide what ad to show people in real time. And um, I was running engineering at that firm in 2014 when I was recruited into finance. And interestingly, that those problems are, are very, very relevant to finance. Because if you know what ad to show someone and ad online advertising has become almost uncanny in its accuracy. If you know what ad to show someone, you know what product they're interested in. And if you know that across all products and services, you know which companies are winning in the marketplace, and that's not priced into stocks. And so it became very clear that that knowledge of uh, what people were wanted to buy was actually going to be much more useful in finance than even it was in advertising.
0: Now, when you see today, there seems to be a lot of demand for data scientists, and it seems that every institutional investor at least is trying to do something in this space do you get an idea that that is warranted or or do you think there is too high expectations around what you can achieve with data science
1: well i actually um think it's absolutely warranted and i think that the expectations of what will be achieved with data science are still not quite at the level that's what will be achieved i believe the data science driven investing will be bigger than the quant revolution was but on the other hand i also believe that um there's a great um, story around what Gartner calls the hype cycle. And we're in the first peak of the hype cycle, which is sort of a place where you have more heat than light. Uh, and so I think many people and their enthusiasm to get into data science aren't going to do it the right way. And they're going to end up um, spending lots of money, becoming disillusioned and almost miss the second peak of uh, the, the, where real success happens.
0: Yeah, on the on that last point, this is why why I asked the question: Is is it being overhyped? Because I've seen some organizations that really embrace the idea, but then they I- identified certain sources of data or data sets that they thought might be interesting for the organization, build the infrastructure, got the data set in, and then they were not what we do. they, they actually didn't find a, a way to extract value or, or a benefit out of it.
1: Yeah, it's um I guess what's it's called in computer science a bootstrapping problem. It's so you don't know what you don't know. Um and um it's very hard for firms to actually figure out how to get started. They very clearly understand that they might miss something if they don't get started, but um it's going to be quite easy for them to make wrong turns um and to get burned and spend too much money doing the wrong thing. I'll tell you that most of the data that people want to sell is not useful about five percent of the data that you know from vendors that you could buy is actually useful and so you know a one in 20 shot is a is a pretty high risk if you don't know what you're doing
0: yeah and i think the additional problem as well is that a lot of new data sets that are coming out are coming out of startups Mm -hmm. and so you don't know if they're going to be around in a couple of years time how do you manage uh, the integrity of, of uh, sourcing the data?
1: Yeah, I mean, the other related problem in that space is that um, they want to provide a value add. I mean, some of these vendors, the data isn't theirs, and they want sort of a broker fee for a finder's fee. But uh, And that's almost okay. But the ones who want to do their own data science to add value to it, there's a really big risk that they've muddled it in the process of actually trying to add value. But you know, the point you raise is also true, that some of those um, businesses um, might, not survive themselves and if you want access to the data you know it like anything um it's practice 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 right so it's just a matter of actually getting closer to that and starting with some degree of expertise in the process um you know part of what we found is that you just have to learn to ask the right questions like anything else in any other vendor you're trying to work with you know one of the questions which i find most useful uh, with with uh, data vendors is asking uh, where ground truth comes from so if they're trying to tell you something, how do they normalize it? How do they actually compare it to some source of ground truth so that you can, you can tell if it works? The other thing I, I try to do with data vendors is to put the onus on them to prove um, its utility. Um, and I think that, that can help a lot.
0: I understand as well that when you bring it into the asset management space, that one of the problems with a lot of the data is that it, it, the, it doesn't deal well with time series. Have you found the solution to this?
1: Uh, the data is less about time series, and you know I think the uh, the challenge is that the existing folks in asset managers who know who are most comfortable in dealing with data tend to come from a quant background, and everyone um, is comfortable with their own starting point. (laughs) And so they want to start there. And so they ask questions about time series. They ask questions about 10 years of history and so on and so forth. And and, uh, in many cases with these data sets, those are not the right questions. In fact, I find that the way that fundamental investors think about Um, their problems is the right set of problems. Um, but they don't have the math and computer science methods to think about those problems. And so, so it's, it it really is, uh, in the middle of the two. And if I could just take a second, I'll tell you a, a quick, um, anecdote related to that. And that is that, um, uh, fundamental investors, they want to get more involved in quantitative processes. So what they'll do is hire an analyst, have them scrape the web, find me the magic number, and then I'll manually put it in my spreadsheet. And the quant investors, they want to get more involved in fundamentals, but they want to have history, and they and they want to stay stay true to their process. So I have a friend, uh, Richard Sloan. He teaches a two semester graduate class at USC. He writes textbooks on valuation. He has quants calling him up and asking him, "Okay, now have you on the phone? What ratio should I use?" And he wants to tell him, "If I could reduce it to a single ratio, why do I have to teach a two semester graduate class?" And so essentially, they you know everyone wants to bring the problem into their own comfort zone as opposed to thinking about this is a brand new problem which has its own features. And so I think that um, uh, signal processing and lots of history are less important, sort of absolute measures, but less important than sort of a relative measure of which companies gaining market share and gaining a, a tele addressable market in terms of their customer base and which ones are losing it. And that's information that doesn't require lots of time series and lots of history. It's more what I would call a spatial ensemble than a temporal ensemble.
0: Is that the right way to think about these things where you use traditional techniques but then enhance them with uh, data science?
1: It's, it is a combination of the two areas, but I think that um, there are lots of ways of thinking about how to combine the two areas. Uh, we have the opportunity at Neuberger to actually look at what I think is the strongest way to do it, and that is start with the fundamental model, which is a financial model of the business, and elaborate it in more detail and updated it automatically at scale with computers. And so you're really starting with a fundamental model. I mean, the fact that it's quantitative, it just means you're using computers. And it's much less to do with um, you know stochastic calculus or some of the signal processing methods that, that sort of have been common in education systems around quant.
0: So what are some of the promises that, that the more artificial intelligence machine learning type strategies uh, hold? Because... I think one of the issues there is as well that um, some of the strategies have some promise, but then to bring it back into a fiduciary environment where you have to explain what it's doing Mm. and explain every step along the way, that can sometimes be a bit challenging.
1: Well, uh, so I have a story related to that too. I was giving a talk on use of data and investing at one of the universities uh, in New York. And uh, after the talk, uh, the dean at the university asked me a question. He said... He said, um, how will businesses ever trust these machine learning methods? You know, they're... They're black boxes. We don't know how they learn. We don't know how they represent information. We don't know how they make decisions. Um, and I said to him, well, you know, here we are at university and we don't know and where we'll we train these students. And we don't know how they learn. We don't know how they make decisions. We don't know how they represent information. So how will businesses ever hire them? And the, the answer is <laughs> that they'll hire them because they'll give them a small task first. And then once they perform well at a small task, they'll give them a bigger task. And and the exact same thing will happen um, with uh, these types of um, models that we um, and we'll graduate actually understand them, we'll certainly understand them before we'll understand the people.
0: So it's not so much the (laughs) problem with machine learning, but with machine teaching.
1: The problem problem is um, that, again, it's, it's a challenge to think about how to use new methods that we haven't used in the past. But the way we always use new methods is we only trust so far until we actually have more experience with them.
0: Yeah. So you've been in this field a long time. Um, Can you tell me some of the changes that you've seen over the year? Um, There's obviously a lot more data to play with, but... Have the techniques changed as well?
1: Yeah, I think the, the techniques certainly have changed. I mean, I, I I think that some of the first methods of using data were really using data in its itself directly. Um, so um, it, as I like to say, you take the data, you remove the outliers, um, you um, normalize it, then you shred it and put it in the soup. Um, you know, that's sort of a quant method. Um, I think the um, now you might need more data sources in order to understand it. And what we're doing is we're inferring things like demographics and psychographics from the data so if i look at credit card transactions i can infer male female i can infer a millennial baby boomer i can uh, know income level and so on and so forth and then i can look at um who are in the customer base of uh what types of individuals from the customer base and and is a is a company expanding its customer base or is it just getting more loyalty spent from the same customer base or is it losing some of that customer base to, to other competitors? Um, and then you also bring in other data sources in order to um, detect where you might have a bias because all data is biased and removing bias is the best thing but detecting bias is the second best thing because so you can know something about conviction. So I, th- so I certainly think that the field is, is going to progress but I also think that there's an enormous amount of inefficiency in the market um, and and so uh, there's a long long path ahead
0: so what are some of the data sets that you're most excited about today
1: yeah well interestingly one of the earliest data sets that people are using in this space is a uh, credit card transactions um, so um, if the weather is nice people go shopping you can get cell phone location and know they took their phone shopping but if you have credit card transactions you know what they spent so I like to have uh, transaction level data that's as close to the to the coal face as possible you know the more detail the better and also um, as granular as possible Um, I like to tell vendors I don't want raw data I want rare data slightly cooked Right.
0: Okay. So is that still relating then to credit card information or do you overlay it with new sets? Or? Well, so
1: the credit card information, so it'll, it'll contain things about consumer, but people say, well, isn't that just about consumer? Well, I think that the consumer... Um, affects all sectors of the market. You know, you have consumer fintech, consumer banking, consumer healthcare, um, and so the consumer is a driver of lots of the economy. Um, and uh, in terms of supply chain and everything else, I mean, one of the interesting things from from credit card that may surprise people is you can use credit card data to read out oil production. Right? How do you do that? Well, it turns out that between Ten and 50,000 people in the U.S. lease their land for fracking. There are a handful of trusts who make royalty p- deposits into their bank accounts, uh, and the royalty deposit is proportional to the oil extracted. So you find a few hundred of those in your credit card data, you regress it against U.S. oil production, and you have a regional read on U.S. oil production in real time.
0: So with some of these um, signals or, or indicators that you find within the data, I suppose some of the more cynical investors say well it's all very nice but within a couple of months it's all arbitraged away how do mm. you deal with signal decay
1: well so um, there are lots of uh, cynical investors related to this and I, I like um, uh, the perspective I like in terms of describing this and thinking about this is um, comes back to the the joke version of the efficient market hypothesis um, so which Eugene Fama proposed uh, won the Nobel Prize for. So the joke version goes like this. Um, Professor Fama was walking down the road with another economist. The other economist says to him, look, Professor Fama, there's $50 on the road. Professor Fama says it must be counterfeit or someone else would have picked it up. So when I talk about um, data for investing, um, people say it must be impossible or two sigma and Citadel would have picked it up. And so it, essentially, um, there's a there's a strong belief that and it's sort of a People have been working very, very hard in this industry to try to make money, and they really are resistant to someone saying, you've been walking past a pile of gold as you slaved away to try to use your method. And there are some other methods that actually work better. And, you know, that's a little bit of a soul-destroying you know, thing to tell someone. And so I think that there's going to be a lot of reluctance to move into the space. Um, uh, I was speaking, um, a couple of years ago with a fellow named Neil Chris. He's one of the earliest fiscal arbitrage, um, quants. He ran the Cubus function for, uh, Neil, Steve Cohen. Um, he built his own firm called Hutch and Hill. He's, he's described in the book called the quants, um, uh, from the early chapters. He said he can't count the people who said to him they wish they were in statistical arbitrage 20, 30 years ago because it was like picking up money off the street. It was very easy to construct a strategy that made money. So the reason why they weren't in statistical arbitrage is because doing signal processing with PhDs in physics wasn't the way they thought about investing. He said 10, 20 years from now, people are going to look back at this period of time and say, gee, I wish I was in data-driven investing in the early days. Yeah. But the reason why they won't be is because it's very different from the way they think about investing. And so, you know, it's, um, you know, I I think uh, it's useful and I like public speaking related to con- uh, explaining how this method works. But I, I certainly think that many, many people um, will. Um. There's a quote I love, which is, um, I believe it was Churchill, but I might be wrong. He said, a man will occasionally stumble upon the truth, but usually he picks himself up and continues on.
0: Yes, indeed. <laughs> So when we look at uh, where we are today, um, you said that it's a very different way of thinking about investing, but probably people are a little bit more familiar with it today than they were probably 20 years ago. Mm. To what degree do you think that going forward this will become more of an arms race in the sense that the person with the largest budget and computers will be able to extract the most value from this type of data?
1: Yeah, so um, just to to quickly address the first part of that, I I do think people are very aware of the idea of using data for investing. But one of the things that they aren't thinking about sufficiently is uh, the technology changes that are required. Uh, Most bricks and mortar businesses, and I include most asset managers in this category, they they treat technology, they only want to stay, you know, 10 years behind in technology and so the technology stack they need really to process this data and not only that they're not used to engaging technologists as creative participants in the business they're used to engaging them as people who do work orders and so it's that change in their engagement which is going to be important but to get to the arms race question um you know one of the things that um, we've uh, managed to do with some experience is to acquire the same data for much much less money so for example i pay one twentieth about for the credit card data compared to what I paid for to the hedge fund. The right. story is actually very straightforward. Um, and the story is that um, when I approached the, the vendor that sells the data, I said to them, look, um, I want to pay essentially 1 what I paid when I was at the hedge fund. And they laughed at me. And um, I said, why would we ever do that? I said, well, you can take the data and delay it by a month. Now go to the hedge funds that trade on events and ask them how much they'll pay for it if it's delayed by a month. The answer is zero because they want to trade on events and we care about long-term capital gains. So you're not selling to any asset managers at all, and they don't uh, and and because they don't want to compete with these hedge funds uh, for price. But, if you, but they don't mind if the data is delayed. So I help you build an entire new channel for selling your product. Before we have any more conversation, I get it for my price. So I, I was at a, um, an event uh, last year with our uh, president or our firm. Um, and he was asked by one of our investors, how much does this data cost? And he said, oh, well, this data is really expensive. It costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. I said, no, this data costs millions of dollars. We pay hundreds of thousands. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good way of describing it. <laughs> So I want
0: to go a little bit back to earlier in the conversation, we we spoke about uh, you have a background in neuroscience as well. Mm -hmm. And recently I was talking to one of the the neuroscientists at one of the universities here in Australia. And he had this interesting concept around the type of problems that people try to solve. And he basically illustrated it uh, in in a way with a jigsaw puzzle and with a jar of uh, different colored uh, lollies. And he said, a lot of the problems we try to solve in investment is the lolly jar, where it's a game of probability. The more samples you're allowed to take, the more accurate your solution will be. But there's another type of problem, and that is all the information is already there. You have the jigsaw. It's about how you put it together that is going to give you the right solution. And he says, often investing, the information is there, but how you put it together is whether you're going to extract value or not. So many people are solving the wrong problem. What is your opinion on that?
1: I think it's it's right. I absolutely think the information is out there. And I think that um, people have been um, not paying attention to it because it doesn't fit in the way they think about uh, processes. So I think it's it's creatively thinking about how to use the information that's out there. And and I find it sometimes um, quite surprising that um, uh, something as driven by straightforward metrics of performance like investing, that it isn't actually making those creative steps to think about how to use information uh, better than it has in the past. I come only to the investing world uh, five years ago. But, you know, and I have to say from the outside, I expected it to be much more efficient at that puzzle-solving problem than when I arrived and I found it to be.
0: So there's lots of room for
1: improvement. Oh, there's an enormous amount of room for for improvement. I mean, when you watch the reactions of markets to information and you you sort of um, shake your head and think, well, gee, why is the market not as more informed than it, it seems to be?
0: Yeah. Now you, you spoke about um, the hedge fund where you had to pay a lot more because it's uh, more about the events rather than a long term uh, time frame. Can you tell me a little bit more about how data science is applied in, in these different environments? So you, you have mm. the hedge fund, you also work for a sovereign wealth fund and yes. now uh, a fund manager. Yeah. How do you apply it differently?
1: Yeah, so I think there are three primary time domains um, that are distinct where people think about using data for investing. Um, And I've been involved in two of those time domains. So let's just lay out all three of them. So the first time domain is um, a time domain where you're using information like social media, news, and sentiment. And so if I know before you do... Because I'm using natural language processing in a computer and consuming lots of news sources, that Panasonic is going to not um, um, do this next round of investing in the Gigafactory, then Tesla stock is certainly going to go down today. And so that's a that's a front-running race, and so um, uh, it's, it's sort of a race towards high-frequency trading in the shortest time domain. Uh, that that uh, use of data I've not been particularly involved in. The second time domain is around quarterly earnings. Now, quarterly earnings um, are fascinating because um, when companies tell you how they're doing, there are all these so-called earning surprises. And the mere fact that there are earning surprises is the clearest indication that the market's not efficient. Because if we're surprised, it clearly isn't priced in. Yes. <laughs> so, so um, uh, and w- but what the CEO and CFO will tell you is uh, something about top-line revenue, something about earnings per share, something about future guidance, all of those things are discoverable in data, and the data can actually compete quite well with discretionary folks at guessing that information. Where well, the discretionary folks are sometimes using social networking and spreadsheets and, and other sources. I describe them, some of them, as listening to the chirping birds. And they learn over time that when this bird chirps that way, they have to do something. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so that's the second time domain. The third time domain, again, because the CEO and CFO don't tell you everything, the third time domain is knowing more about the business. Than everyone else does, and that allows you almost like in a private equity way to buy the next Google before everyone else can see them, and uh, and that requires lots of depth of data, and it's a longer term investing. Sometimes you might have to wait for a year to get paid because you know something, and you have to wait till the market discovers it, and that's the time domain that we're really working in at Newberger, uh, where we're. Understanding the businesses in much more detail than, um, and it's sometimes when we meet with the in corporate access meetings and we t- we tell things to the CEO of public companies, they're surprised.
0: <laughs> I, f- I find it interesting because the type of organization and your objectives uh, matter in how you use uh, data and how you use your algorithmic trading. And it also made me think that a lot of people seem to think that this is just unbiased material and you will get the same outcome no matter how you use it but that's obviously not true Um, it also makes me then think how do you deal with some of the biases that might be introduced by the way how you interact with uh, the data and i've I've used this example a couple of times but um, some of the progress that has been made in 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 natural language processing is, is, is quite interesting and to me as a journalist, it's interesting because I thought it's it kind of saved me a lot of time in transcribing all my interviews. I just put it into this software and it all comes out nicely. Well, your voice will come out nicely because you have a, a very clear US accent. My voice is completely un-understandable un- by a computer. But I can imagine that that will come back in different ways in, in, in how you use the data as well. How do, how do you deal with that?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think the, um, the most important thing when you're using any data set to start at the beginning of your comment um, is to detect bias. And as um, Peter Norvig, um, one of the senior engineering leaders at, at Google who built Google Translate, he'll tell you on YouTube videos that uh, the more data is generally better. I mean, it re- increases the accuracy of your processes. But if you include any bad translations, you can't overcomment. And so it's uh, worth throwing away some of the data if you know there's a risk of it being erroneous and even if you lose some good data along the way and i think that that's a really important thing and most people who are processing data um, aren't doing that the other thing i'll say is that um, to your point around understanding natural language processing is um, that in some data sets you have more data from each individual so for example if i'm looking at credit card transaction data and there's three or four banks in it then, even though I have billions of transactions, there really are only three speakers. <laughs> each of those banks has a consistent way of speaking. Whereas, if I look at um, bills of lading, customs documents for shipping, each one is written by a different person, and I might only have one piece of evidence from that one person. And that's a much much harder natural language processing problem because uh, I have one shred of evidence of the way one person speaks, and I have to you know or writes, and I have to uh, figure that out to understand what the contents are. And so we we are very focused in our in our processing. Of- not just how many data points you have, but uh, how many consistent data points from a single source you have to try to resolve what that source is telling you.
0: Yeah, and that comes back to structuring the data and and cleaning the data. To what degree do you think that part of data science is well understood?
1: Well, I think it's actually the core of... uh, So the way I think about um, our process is... There are several different roles and sort of in a pipeline. The first role is um, data sourcing, and that requ- requires some understanding of what kind of data might be useful, you know, an ability to ask the right intellectual questions and almost like a SWAT team type um, efficiency at actually quickly evaluating lots of different data sets. The next st- stage in, in that pipeline is um, the one you're talking about, which is natural language processing. How do you actually, once you have this data Um, most efficiently without with the least bias actually do the labeling of this uh, data and again sometimes these first two steps will be outsourced by asset managers um the third step is model building so now that i have extracted information so let me just pick on the labeling for a moment so if, if i have a transaction that says paypal through expedia for united airlines there are three vendors involved but if it says starbucks at the hilton hilton gets rent (laughs) and so um and so there's lots and lots of complexity about how you process those transactions um, as well as misspellings and funny brands and so on and so forth and so that's really important and sometimes when you're hiring that person they don't need to know as much about about finance as they do about how to process data the third step which is trying to use those pieces of a puzzle to use your analogy to then figure out how this business is doing. And that requires someone who has an interest in business, um, who is also a data scientist and working at scale. And then once you've done that, there's the next stage in the process is a screening. So I have all this information about a bunch of different companies and how do I identify opportunities. And all of this sits on top of what I call data engineering, which is another set of people who love tools and I love efficiency and I love thinking about how to do these things at scale. It, interesting thing, you look at sport, sports and you say, well, there's a forward. a guard you know basically there are about five different roles all called data science that's required to to build a team that does this effectively
0: to what degree is data science then about maths and how much is it about creativity and being able to anticipate um, the problems that might come up you you mentioned that example of misspellings and Mm -hmm. common misspellings and you sort of have to think a couple of steps ahead and come up with multiple scenarios in your head of what might happen there to hmm. so what degree is creativity a part of, of that well
1: i think it's absolutely huge and i think it's it's what what appeals to me i mean i went um from intel to academia because i wanted to work on more open problems and i went from academia to industry because i want to work both on big open problems also which have high impact and, and so I think the fact that, that these problems are so open is really important. I think to provide some context and to look at some of what some of the firms are doing, I don't want to necessarily name them, but, um, you know, some firms at one end of the spectrum the way they find gold is you can think of it as strip mining everyone works in lockstep and they just remove the next layer they produce the next processor everyone's doing the same thing and someone actually has the inside of exactly what needs to be done but every, but there's almost no creativity in, in or less creativity because everyone's simply just following through with what the overall organization's goal is. At the other end of the spectrum, you have like the pharmaceutical industry where you have lots of individual scientists, but each one is a prospector. Each one's thinking about their own ideas about how to find a new drug. If one of them finds a drug, everyone wins. And in that spectrum of strip mining to prospecting, I believe that if you have a big open problem, like how do you do this in finance, it's much more in prospecting. In fact, I used to say to people, the worst thing I can do is to tell everyone to dig in the same place. Yes. And, and so, um, so I think that um, when you're looking at how firms do this… I've been a manager for 40 years of people, and you know my number one rule about management is never tell people what to do. God. And so you you know, you want to actually inspire people with what the um, needs to be done and the metrics for measuring that, and you want to have as diverse a set of people as possible to come up with lots of crazy ideas for how to do it, and that's what makes it fun, and that's what makes it successful.
0: Yeah. So what are some of the areas that that, that you think uh, we'll see most innovation coming out of?
1: Well, I think um, one of the um, uh, challenging but exciting things that's happening is that all of this application of these methods into finance is happening during a period of time, call it the singularity, where um, advances in machine learning in both um, processing of images, processing of text, are advancing in a phenomenal rate. So one of the challenges that we have, and again, it's an exciting challenge, is to keep track of what's happening in academia and uh, so that uh, we can understand um the best set of methods at the same time lots of new tools are being developed um in the cloud environment um i was just at a conference uh, before coming to australia in san francisco where i was speaking at the um you know in the development of new cloud tools and so i think that that's uh uh, that's going to change you know the whole the landscape that we do the work in is changing at a phenomenal rate and i also like hiring people straight out of college because a lot of times they come with some experience with some of the latest methodologies and so so i think it's um you know again that's one of the re- ways and it's very very different from the quant processes as certainly from the discretionary investors processes is that these completely different stack of tools that you know uh, again people have been thinking about their tech- technology folks as someone who fixes their fixes their email put a phone jack here and write this piece of code and it's going to be a completely different world
0: now another part f- for investing is also the incorporation of esg and and governance frameworks is it possible to build ethical considerations that uh, or values that an organization might have in into these algorithmic uh, strategies and do you think that should be done
1: oh absolutely yeah um and i you know i think that um there's lots of uh, academic research that shows that you actually get paid for doing the right thing. <laughs> um, you know, and in some cases, with some of the businesses that have actually had governance or other issues, it may take you a while. The um, the stock might, you know, the performance might look very good, but, you know, the rot comes through. And, you know, and uh, uh, and so we... Um, and Newberger's was the first firm in asset manager in the world to actually have socially responsible investing. And it's partially because our, we started with... Um, Wealthy New Yorkers and direct wealth management, and you know there are a bunch of people who want to make money but want to to feel um, not feel guilty about it. <laughs> and so the so the, so we were for the first in social responsible investing, and we have a, now a big ESG team, and we share staff uh, with them in order to help them process very large data sets. And we also have just um, started um, collaborating with the UN. Um, they have lots of interesting data that we can help them process in order to um, understand. Uh, get get better data sets on you know, social impact, on environmental impact, on, on governance. Um, and you know, I think there are some vendors who've started in the space to try to, again, package and sell the data, but I think the real opportunity in understanding how businesses work um, is very much the same. If you're understanding how a business works from the point of view of you know how good they are to their customers and how much they're expanding their, in their client base, then you're also understanding how that customer, whether they're cutting corners and, and doing things untoward, that that are going to challenge the business in the future.
0: So it's not simply a matter of building some negative screens into an algorithm?
1: I don't think so. I think it's really a matter of, um, again, I think uh, largely due to inexpensive electronics. There's information about every aspect of businesses that is out there in the world. And um, uh, what the data are doing, just to your puzzle analogy, is putting together this picture puzzle to tell you everything about a company. And where everything about a company are the reasons where where success is coming from, as well as any any challenges in the way that they're accomplishing that. So I think we're just going to understand businesses better um, in all aspects. And that's going to help us make much better decisions about which companies we want to own part of.
0: Yeah. If we look a little bit into the future to what degree do you think that um, innovation or development of this space might be inhibited by the understanding of the stakeholders involved so um, i'm thinking for instance some of the organizations are made up of boards that are not financial specialists and i think some of the, the the investment strategies can be sometimes hard to understand especially if you go more into the alternative and derivative space then you put on top of this this layer of data science that might be a whole not a complexity uh, to them as well um, how, how important do you think it is to get stakeholder buy-in when you developing these strategies
1: oh I, I mean I think the um, the nice thing about these strategies I'll say to look at it from the other direction is that people automatically understand it better in fact uh, our our um, I've heard from many people in the industry that if you try to convince a CIO on some quant strategy, the CIO might understand it, but then they also have to explain it to their investment board. And uh, because of the, the challenge in sort of communicating that, that corresponds to a larger margin of safety between your guaranteed Uh, returns and and uh the the management fee (laughs) and so whereas in if i if i can explain to someone how a higher resolution microscope and better understanding of the business is going to lead to better business decisions people get it immediately and there's less of a hurdle so i think some of these quant methods of looking at signal processing and so on had this burden of lots of math and lots of and sort of this magic in the math that you couldn't quite get and we use math too but we use math um as part of our microscope. And at the end of the day, when you have an insight, you have the insight. <laughs> and the, the math is just a mechanism to get there. The math isn't the insight itself. <laughs> and and I think that that provides an advantage in terms of people understanding it and, and, and stakeholder buy-in, because they just have an easier time understanding what you're talking about.
0: So to a degree, it's easier to bring the concepts behind the strategy across than it is w- when you uh, uh, do a very specific trading strategy
1: that's right in fact you know when people when people ask you a question why do you believe this you know if if you end up with a page of math they're gonna be stuck but if you but the interesting you know when I interview people one of the questions I ask them in an interview is tell me about something that you learned that was different from what you thought when you started because that's the nature of science and that's why I think it's chief data scientist as opposed to data engineer. Because okay. because in science, you often don't know some, you know, you have this circuitous path to discover something. Post-hoc, it makes a ton of sense. Once you have the epiphany, it's absolutely clear. You don't know why you didn't think about it in the first place. And so it's those types of insights that you're looking for in people you want to hire, because that's what the data science is about. And so once you have the insight, once you've found the path, everyone completely gets it. So what, and was, so
0: what was one of the more interesting answers to that question that you've received in these interviews?
1: You know, I let them take any field that they've been working in, like, you know, from what they were doing in physics, physics or otherwise, um, but, you know... One of the examples um, uh, from, uh, I would say, is that someone was actually looking at um, for a uh, supermarket. The supermarket wanted to print personalized coupons uh, you know, uh, for, uh, for, to come back. The supermarket had a top-down belief that the way to partition their customers was by um, life stage, you know, single, you know, single married young kids, you know, all the way to, you know, uh, retired and lifestyle, which is a proxy for wealth. And that's, you know, let me just figure out what, what they're buying and figure out what coupon to and but the this particular person discovered that the better partitioning, was where they'd immigrated from and how long they'd been in the country. Right. And that was actually a better predictor of the things they were buying than the than the parameters you're starting with. And so the, the the trick is that with top-down classifications, and this is also relevant in this whole idea of how you evaluate people, if you start with a top-down classification, you're essentially starting with a pre-constructed framework. And if you're starting with the data, you really don't have a preconcept to figure out what the data tells you. And, you know, and I think that's what's exciting to me about this data driven process is finding methods to start with. In fact, people are talking about build a model of a company one customer at a time yeah. <laughs> so that if I can figure out how each customer relationship looks and I can sum it up and look like the health of the company. And really, I think it's this is this approach of starting with the data and then coming up with what is it? What does it tell you as opposed to seeing if it if it validates some top down hypothesis that you have from what the framework should, is telling you?
0: Yeah. And if we do a little bit of uh, crystal ball gazing next five years, where do you think um, this field will develop? Where are the most interesting parts?
1: Yeah, so again, I think that... Um, so where I've been teaching at every place I've been, and I just finished the first class at Newberger teaching portfolio managers how to code. Um, and, I, you know, there's been a debate about are quants going to get interested in business? Most of them don't read the Wall Street Journal. Or are um, um, fundamental investors going to learn to program? and you know and i i actually think the fundamental investors are really driven to actually have a uh, unique insight and i you know i my uh, money's is on the fundamental investors learning to learning to program and they already write very complicated uh, macros um and so um so uh, i think that what's going to happen is that um we're going to end up with a set of asset managers um who are using the right methods who are going to you know be once again better than indices and better than other asset managers and there'll be, uh, they'll be you know, doing significantly better. I mean, another thing is I think they we're going to have more and more data scientists. Uh, you know, We embed data scientists also in investing teams and in some cases the team then steals the person and you hire some more data scientists. Um, then people ask me, how many data scientists do we need when we're done? And I use a quote from Alexander Graham Bell. Um, he was asked, how many phones does the world need? His answer was, each town needs at least one. <laughs> so so if I tell you everyone's going to be a data scientist you might not believe me but if I tell you each town needs one you'll believe me <laughs> it's,
0: it's very interesting because I had a conversation with one of the uh, people in, in this field and he still felt that the first response was okay we've got this new strategy we think this going to work can you please automate it and his response was if it's just the automation piece you should know how to code mm-hmm. do you think that we We'll head there where every portfolio manager needs to be okay. able to code.
1: Yeah, I've been speaking to lots of universities, and I, they don't really have the right degree program. I think the people who will be golden in the future are people who can think about business-driven valuation of companies and can code and do math. And there's no degree program that's generating them, much like there wasn't a quant uh, degree program before. And I think that's the degree program that will, will come about. In fact, I tell people who are students, I say, don't graduate until you can code. Um, because it doesn't matter what field you're going into. Um, coding is one of the most powerful things that, that to uh, future-proof whatever your career is going to be. So um, um, I absolutely do think that, um, you know, and I, again, I think that there are going to be lots of jobs that are going to be automated away. I mean, there was an interesting statistic I was reading the other day um, uh, that most people think that almost many 90% of the jobs will be done by robots or automation. But um, also the vast majority don't think it's their job. <laughs> so yes. it'll be interesting to see what happens in the, in the next, yes. next set of years. But again, the best way to future-proof a career is to actually get uh, involved in uh, coding early.
0: Don't you, I think if you ask most people if they thought they were going to be doing what they're doing right now 20 years ago, then none of them would have predicted that either. So yeah. I think at the same time, jobs will change and... There will still be jobs around. They will be just very different.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the other thing, I mean, I, I, I love this, um, this uh, quote about, because uh, people often think about the future as if it's like a, you know, a wave front that moves across. And the, the quote I, I love is, the future is here already. It's just not uniformly distributed.
0: <laughs> yes. <heard> <laughs> well, Michael, thank you very much for this interview. It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: It was great speaking with to you, too. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.